Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Alexander Platt, Clemenko Fellow and Lecturer in Law at Harvard Law School. We'll be discussing his article, Gatekeeping in the Dark, SEC Control Over Private Securities Litigation Revisited. The article will be published in the Administrative Law Review, and I'll link to it in the show notes for today's episode. Alex, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks so much, Andrew. Very excited to be here. Alex, before we begin the conversation, I wanted to start with just a word of congratulations This podcast is being recorded on March 3rd, and I saw this morning that you will be joining the University of Kansas School of Law faculty as an associate professor. So kudos and congratulations. Thanks so much. I'm really excited to be joining uh, University of Kansas School of Law this fall, teaching securities regulation and some other courses. Really excited about it. So Alex, your paper has touched on a literature in the securities litigation literature on piggybacking. Could you maybe introduce for our listeners what is piggybacking in the securities litigation context and what has been the SEC's attitude toward piggybacking? So a significant amount of private securities litigation in our country piggybacks on SEC enforcement activity. That is to say, the private litigation benefits in some way from the actions taken by the federal regulator. To date, scholars really have overlooked the agency's responsibility in generating this piggybacking effect. But actually, the SEC's enforcers wield a tremendous amount of discretion over how much piggyback litigation there's going to be. So the SEC makes a series of decisions over the course of an individual enforcement action that can catalyze more private litigation against the same target or not. So, of course, the choice to initiate an action in the first place may serve as a kind of valuable signal to private plaintiffs that there was some actionable fraud there worth pursuing. But there are other choices that the SEC makes as well. For instance, the SEC can choose what types of legal charges to include in its complaint or settlement with the target, bringing or settling charges based on intentional wrongdoing rather than mere negligence will be more helpful to the private litigators uh, because private litigation, uh, private securities litigation requires proof of actual intent. Another choice the SEC can make that will have a effect on piggyback litigation is what facts to include in its complaint or settlement. If the SEC includes very salacious or damning facts, uh, that will be helpful to private plaintiffs. They can include those facts in their complaint, and it may help them survive a motion to dismiss. And by contrast, if the SEC chooses to leave out certain facts from its settlement or negotiates that with the target, those facts might not become known to the plaintiff, and they won't be able to use them. And finally, one other example of a choice the SEC makes in the course of its enforcement actions that will have an impact on piggyback litigation is whether to require that the target admit to wrongdoing or admit to particular facts. An admission of wrongdoing would be potentially very useful to a private 
litigator pursuing the same target, they might be able to use that admission to survive a motion to dismiss or even as evidence in the course of their lawsuit against the target. So these are all discretionary choices that SEC enforcers make in the course of their work that can have important downstream consequences on parallel piggyback litigation against the same target. I should note that this piggyback effect is not limited to the SEC's enforcement division. As I discuss in the paper, uh, the comment letters that are sent by the SEC's Division of Corporation Finance to companies flagging problems with their disclosures have also become an important source for private plaintiffs. They use these comment letters in their complaints, and courts have started relying on these comment letters in ruling on motions to dismiss. I'd like to come back to the comment letter topic in a, in a moment. I think it was a really interesting part of the paper. But this paper is really identifying a gap in the literature on the SEC's role in influencing piggybacking in the securities litigation context. Uh, to baby back up a little bit, what concerns have scholars or others raised with piggybacking and what are some of the policies or proposals that they have put forward to address some of those concerns? This question really comes up in the securities litigation context, but also more broadly in the legal literature. And I think there really have been two separate streams of literature and law review articles that I'm trying to connect in this project. So first, there is a series of articles by civil procedure scholars debating the pros and cons of piggyback litigation. On the one side, critics say that piggyback cases serve no valuable social purpose because they don't really serve to uncover new misconduct and they just kind of run up the tab on violations that have already been uncovered through the government's hard work. On the other side, defenders argue that this redundancy can actually be a valuable check on under-enforcement by the government. So the debate is more complicated than that, but that is one stream of literature. It's in the civil procedure field. But there's this other stream of literature out there in administrative law that has been focused on the power of federal agencies to act as gatekeepers of private litigation. For instance, agencies can imply private causes of action by regulation. They can screen or veto or take over the prosecution of individual private cases under some legal regimes. And then other agencies can also just prod along private cases by filing amicus briefs. So that would be administrative law scholarship on gatekeeping. What I'm trying to do in this paper is really bring these two streams of literature together to bring into focus how agencies like the SEC can and do play an important gatekeeping role, not only through the explicit means like filing amicus briefs or implying private rights of action, but also through all of the day-to-day -day enforcement activities that they do that have important downstream consequences on the flow of private litigation. You talk about the implicit gatekeeping that the SEC does for private securities litigation. And one really interesting example of that in the paper is CorpFin comment letters. Maybe what are CorpFin comment letters? What purpose do they play? Is that purpose litigation-based or enforcement-based? And with that, you point out that the SEC does have an implicit gatekeeping function. Does the SEC recognize or acknowledge that? Or uh, is it something that truly is just implicit and they don't regard that one way or the other? So according to the agency's own statements, they do not account for the piggyback effect when setting their enforcement policies and priorities. So, for example, in 2012, 
the SEC's enforcement director at the time, told a congressional committee that the SEC did not change its enforcement or settlement calculus depending on whether or not there was likely to be parallel private litigation. And in 2013, another senior officer of the SEC told a scholar the same thing, that they do not take into account the existence of parallel private litigation when deciding how to proceed with the case. And agency policies and guidance further confirm that the agency doesn't consider the piggyback effects. Consider, for example, the SEC's enforcement manual. So this is a guidance document that lays out various considerations for SEC attorneys to consider at various stages of the investigation and enforcement process. The manual tells attorneys at the SEC to consider, for example, the egregiousness of the misconduct, whether there's an opportunity to send a strong message of deterrence. And also they're supposed to consider the opportunity to collaborate or coordinate with other federal agencies or state enforcers. So there's a lot of things the agency is asking its enforcement officers to consider in this manual when making various enforcement decisions. But the manual says nothing about considering private litigation. And similarly, the SEC policy on when to require an admission in a settlement lays out similar sorts of considerations, you know, how egregious was the misconduct, et cetera. But again, it omits any reference to the existence of parallel private litigation. So the official message here of the SEC has been pretty clear and consistent. That is, they do not take into account the piggyback effect when making enforcement decisions or setting enforcement policies. So you also asked about implicit gatekeeping and whether the agency was already engaged in this. And it's actually hard to say to what extent they are actively thinking about the gatekeeping function that they serve. So some recent enforcement trends would seem to suggest that the agency has been skewing its priorities to effectively minimize piggybacking. So for instance, the agency seems to be moving away from intent-based charges in settlements instead settling charges based on mere negligence more often. And since private litigation must show intent, these negligence-based settlements with the SEC are going to be less helpful to plaintiffs. Similarly, since the agency adopted a new policy on requiring admissions in settlements in 2013, the agency has very, very rarely required defendants to make such admissions. And when it has done so, it seems very willing to craft these admissions in a manner designed to do the least amount of damage in a private case, to be the least useful to private parties suing the same company. So it is possible that these trends reveal that notwithstanding the agency's official statements to the contrary, the SEC has in fact made a policy choice to minimize piggybacking. But there is another darker possibility here. So an enforcement target facing the prospect of piggyback litigation would be expected to factor that risk into its settlement negotiations with the agency. If the SEC has no view of the value of piggyback litigation, if the agency's public statements on this are to be trusted, that's what it, that's what it said, then the agency might come to make choices in its settlement negotiations that systematically minimize the amount of piggyback litigation simply because that's what the target's preference is. So I illustrate this in the paper with a little bit of math, but bear with me. Imagine a scenario in which the optimal sanction is about $100, and the SEC has a choice between two 
possible settlements. So under settlement A, the SEC would get a penalty of $80, and no private litigation would be catalyzed. So the total sanction would be 80 Under settlement B, the SEC would extract a penalty of $50, and as a result of the SEC action, private litigation would be catalyzed, resulting in a private settlement of another $40. So the total sanction under settlement B would be $90. So the target here will obviously prefer settlement A because it would prefer to pay $80 over $90. It wants to pay less. If the SEC does what it says it does, which is completely ignore the piggyback effect, it will go along with the target's preference. It will choose the $80 settlement, but the correct choice here would be settlement B, which gets closer to the optimal sanction of $100. So that illustrates why it is important from a policy matter that the agency not just internalize the target's preferences with regard to private securities litigation, but come to its own internal policy decision about the merits of private litigation. So the SEC has disclaimed taking into account private litigation in its enforcement policies, practices, decisions. What do you propose that it should do when it comes to private litigation? So when the agency decides whether or not to file a case or what facts to include or whether to seek an admission or all the other enforcement decisions it has to make over the course of an action, I think it should consider what impact this choice will have on downstream private litigation against the same target based on the same underlying misconduct. So if the agency believes that this private litigation is likely and will be beneficial to society in some way, then it should do more to catalyze that litigation. And if the agency believes that the litigation is likely but is frivolous or is likely to be socially not valuable for some reason, then it should avoid catalyzing that litigation. But what I think it should not do is simply ignore the question. So I go through a few different ways to implement this in the paper, but I think maybe the most simple and important one that the SEC could implement is to begin accounting for the downstream piggyback effect of its activities in its annual enforcement reports. So every year, the SEC provides Congress a set of statistics and anecdotes tracking the impacts of its enforcement program. But these reports are currently devoid of any mention of the substantial piggybacking effects that the agency's activities generate. And so I think they present a really inadequate and misleading portrait of the agency's real enforcement footprint. So if the agency began systematically tracking and including these downstream piggybacking impacts in its reports to Congress, I think that could really kickstart a productive cycle of accountability as stakeholders and congressional overseers might react to the agency's piggybacking policies as revealed through their impacts. Your proposal really goes to asking the SEC to change some of the framework around how it engages with policing and enforcement and how it thinks about its impact on private litigation. This is a fairly subtle proposal versus some of the more explicit structural reforms that have been proposed by scholars. Why go this route versus uh, other proposals that have been offered? So as you mentioned, in the securities regulation literature, there's been kind of long run of scholarly proposals to centralize the SEC's control over all securities enforcement. So for instance, some have proposed giving the agency a kind of veto power 
over any putative securities class action. So the lawyers would have to present the case first to the agency, and the agency would get to decide whether or not the case could proceed. So that's one proposal that's been out there. Uh, But putting the agency in charge of private litigation like this, I think, poses some serious risks. So the SEC's own decision-making is subject to various types of distortions as has been recognized. And so giving the agency this kind of broad gatekeeping authority would risk importing those distortions onto the entire litigation landscape. So private security litigation is certainly controversial, but there is research showing that it does provide some deterrent and other sorts of social benefits. And so putting the agency in charge of it altogether would put those benefits potentially at risk. And then there's the practical problem, which is that the broader reform proposals that are out there would each require pretty significant legislation to implement. Legislation like that would be an uphill battle, even in more harmonious times, and I think now it's, it's pretty unlikely. So rather than legislatively expanding SEC authority, my argument here is that the SEC can and should make better use of its existing authority in this domain. So it's practical in the sense that it's easier and more achievable, perhaps, than some of the broader proposals, because there's no new legislation required. And I think it also avoids some of the risks of the broader centralization proposals. So under my proposal, private litigation would not be harnessed or handcuffed in any significant way. Rather, I would just have the agency exercise its existing powers to control the flow of private litigation in a more deliberative manner, and I would expect that would improve the private litigation landscape as well. Alex, what key takeaways would you like your listeners to have from this conversation and from the article? Well, one question that I think is still open and that I'm pursuing in my ongoing work now is given the choices and discretion that the SEC's enforcers have to control the flow of private securities litigation, it's very important to understand how the SEC's attorneys actually think about private securities litigation. So the official position of the agency for quite a while has been that private securities litigation is a valuable and necessary complement to the SEC's own enforcement work. But do the line attorneys who work at the SEC really believe this? We don't really know. In a current work in progress, I'm trying to look at the employment choices that the SEC's attorneys make after leaving the agency as a way to get at this question. So we know that there is a revolving door, famous revolving door between the SEC and the defense bar. Folks go back and forth between the SEC's enforcement division, for example, and uh, working for big firms that defend companies against SEC enforcement. But do the SEC's attorneys ever go and join the plaintiff's bar? So I'm looking at that in a new question because I think that bears on the attitudes that SEC enforcement attorneys might bring to these discretionary choices that shape piggyback private litigation. Our guest today has been Alexander Platt, Clemenko Fellow and Lecturer in Law at Harvard Law School. We've discussed his article, Gatekeeping in the Dark, SEC Control Over Private Securities Litigation Revisited, which will be published in the Administrative Law Review. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. Alex, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast, and congratulations again. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app. 
or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.